Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is episode 198 of the Distraction Pieces podcast, and I'm joined this week by Alexis Okowo, and it's one of my favourite episodes I've done. Um, I'll get into it. Alexis has got a book out called A Moonless Starless Sky, Ordinary Women and Men Fighting Extremism in Africa, and the stories in it just blew me away. We get into them in the podcast, so I won't go into tons of detail now, but... Um, it's quite fantastic. Um, they're really they're, the stories are so far from the lives that we live, yet somehow so relatable at the same time. It's it's fantastic. But yeah, how you all doing? Um, episode one hundred ninety eight, right? That means we're pretty close to the big two hundred. As you know, I've mentioned a few times. I've been recording a lot of podcasts on the bounce at the moment, and. Uh, I've not been t- been telling you because I like to get them recorded before I announce any, but I feel I can tell you a few. Uh, this week, we're doing a double. So I've just got s- s- so many podcasts that I'm so excited about at the moment that I'm putting this podcast out on Wednesday, and there's going to be another out on Friday. And on Friday, I'm joined by sh- Charlotte Hatherley of um, of Ash and of, of Bat for Lashes and of her solo projects and... It's a really good talk as well. We talk about her career, obviously, but we also talk a load about sci-fi. Um, she's doing an event called Space Rocks in a, in association with the European Space Agency. Uh, and it's it's cracking. So we talk a lot about her career, a lot about the fact that her first ever gig in Ash was in front of 50,000 people. Um, and loads of stuff like that. So that'll be out on Friday. And that'll be episode 199. And then we'll get on to episode 200, and I recorded it this week, and you'll be pleased to know it's one of the best I've ever... I'm having a a lot this year that are are some of the best I've recorded. Some of you will know there's some big guests on the way. I've had some big guests on in the past, some huge names. I think me and, and, and Russell Brand teased on Twitter that we might be having him back on for episode 200. And that was was one of the plans. I had a few different plans. I don't generally have people back on, and I'll have Russell back on at some point. But um, I got the opportunity to interview the guest that I'm about to tell you about, which is next week's 200th episode. And it instantly had to become the 200th episode. It was such a great opportunity and great conversation. It's a young lady called Jess Tom, who is a comedian and an actress and and, and, and theatrical performer and also a, a happens to have Tourette's. Um, she was on Richard Herring's podcast and it was one of the best podcasts I've ever heard in my l- life and I got to go and see her play Not I, which is a Samuel Beckett uh, play and that was, it blew me away and she's just a wonderful a funny, engaging, articulate, intelligent, a young lady. And yeah, that had to be the 200th episode. It it was, it was at the point I had the realization that as a lot of you will know, or will have noticed, I've got a stutter. Um, it was at the, the point I had the realization that the rarity of a pod, something that's audio based and conversation based being, a person with a stutter sitting down and talking to a person with Tourette's. Um, that seemed 
wonderfully exciting and a great opportunity. So that will be episode 200. It's fantastic. Um, Jess performs as Tourette's hero as well. That's her, that's a company she's got. It's a Twitter profile as well. And it's, it's basically, yeah, it's an amazing conversation. So you're going to love that. That's going to be episode 200. I think for episode 201 to kick things off in the next, the next hundred, let me have a look at my lineup to make sure I'm not remembering it wrong. But, um, that's one that people have been asking for for ages that I recorded a few weeks back. Yes, I do have it lined up as 201. Will be Cedric Bixler Zavala of At the Drive In. Um, I've got Beans on Toast coming up. I've got Jamali Maddox coming up. I'm hoping to record with Nick Hawks, um, Michael Venom Page, Mark Goddard, and Maxine Peake as well. But there's loads to come, basically. So um, I'll let this, I'll get into this podcast. As ever, we're brought to you by Speech Development records.com that's my record label it'd be really cool if you went and had a look at the website there had a look at the web store but for now let's uh, uh, let's hear these amazing and inspirational stories and it, it, it really blows me away when i had Suad mckennett on it blows me away journalists that l- literally put their lives at great risk to, to tell stories that wouldn't get told otherwise. Um, yeah, it's amazing. So I hope you enjoy this and go and check out the book, A Moonless Starless Sky, Ordinary Women and Men Fighting Extremism in Africa. This is episode 198 of the Distraction Pieces podcast. Right, I'm I'm joined today by Alexis Akowo. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Um, thank you for giving me your time at the weekend as well. That's even more. That's even more precious and, and valuable time. So I yeah. I appreciate it. But yeah. um, I you've written um a book called A Moonless Starless Sky: um, Ordinary Women and Men Fighting Extremism in Africa. Um, I absolutely adored it. I, I found it absolutely amazing. It's I need to say at the start, the structure of it I really enjoyed, which seems like an odd thing to start with, mm. but because it's essentially telling four s- separate stories and it tells the first half of each story in the first half of the book and the, s- the second half of each story in the second half of the book, mm-hmm. uh, which I really l- like because it invests you in each story. But also I mentioned at the start because I decided to stop halfway through because we were going to be having this conversation okay. i, I kind of w- i wanted to get to that know half the story mm-hmm. but not just know all of it and be telling it all myself oh, right, as such. Right, so right. yeah okay it's kind of but i found it it, it absolutely f- 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 fascinating um but let's kind of start with your your history and upbringing so, so you're american you're born in america yes um in alabama right uh well i was born in texas but grew up in alabama yeah and and how was that yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I actually had a really nice childhood. Um, it was an interesting childhood because I grew up in the Deep South, yeah. but I grew up also in a Nigerian household. Right. So I was straddling two cultures constantly yeah. where, you know, I went to school with um, people who who grew up 
who had grown up, grew up in the South, whose families had been in the South for a long time, yeah. and there was a very distinct Southern culture. And at the same time at home, you know, I'm immersed in Nigerian food, music, um, languages. Um, my parents belong to a Nigerian association, and so wow. there are always um, community gatherings that um, evoked Nigeria. And so there was a sense of, of, of being between two two cultures, two places. Yeah, I mean that must be a great thing to have those those those, those shared and rich experiences, and both as well with real heritage and history. But mm-hmm. I had um I Don Letts on the podcast recently, and he spoke of growing up in London or in Britain in a Jamaican family. Mm-hmm. He had those influences, but also it kind of meant he didn't feel. Like he was, he, he he felt like an outsider in both. As such, yeah. he felt to Jamaicans, he you know he had a British accent. He clearly mm-hmm. isn't Jamaican, and mm-hmm. particularly in that time, and I'd imagine in the South as well, it can mm-hmm. be to to a certain amount of Brits or uh, Americans. He was black, so right. he's not British yeah. in, in in their eyes. Yeah. So, did you have any kind of conflict yeah. of lack of identity, almost almost at the at the the wealth of options of identity mm-hmm. and leaving you without mm-hmm. any as such. Yeah, that's that's a good way to to describe it because I did feel that way. I felt almost on the fringe of each culture, yeah. not completely belonging, not completely a Black American, even though I am a Black American. But I don't have um, the same history yeah. as as um, technical African Americans because my descendants weren't slaves. Yeah. Um, you know, my descendants can't. My descendants are Nigerian, and so saying, particularly in the South as well, where right. there's such it's such heritage that is so intrinsic for Black and White Americans right. because of the 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 Confederates and the exactly. and, and the the clinging on to slavery in the South. So even more so, but that's again that's not a history that you can be on have either side attached to. Right. You know? So it's an interesting experience of of of, of being Black in America and experiencing all that goes with that especially living in the south but then not being a part of it in a sense because as you said i'm not really involved in that um complex and intricate relationship between black white and black and white americans in the south that is that was forged by slavery that was forged by you know jim crow um forged by the, the the legacy of the confederacy um and so yeah, it was a strange experience. I mean, I, I obviously I felt black and I am black, but there was a, a sense of being also other too. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 when did you kind of fall in love with with Africa, with your 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 family's heritage as such? Was that an immediate thing, or was that something that that grew, that grew over time? Yeah, that was definitely um, a thing that came later on. Because when I was a kid, I. You know, I just wanted to fit in. I just wanted to uh, eat hamburgers and, like, um, do things with my American friends. And I appreciate, I think, in a, in a broader sense, um, our Nigerian-ness. But it wasn't something I had much curiosity about yeah. until college um, when I knew that I wanted to be a journalist. Um, and I had grown more interested in, in sort of living abroad. I studied abroad here in London. Yeah. Uh, and so an opportunity came up to to work in Uganda and East Africa. Oh, wow. And even then, I mean, I wasn't sort of gung-ho about the continent in, in, in the sense of like, oh, I need to be there. Yeah. I just thought this could be an, a fun 
adventurous opportunity yeah. to go report a, a, in Africa. A, an opportunity is there that that many wouldn't have. So that's right. got to be a be a jumped upon. And and again, I've not even mentioned now, but you're a journalist and a staff writer at the New Yorker and mm-hmm. have been published in the New York Times and numerous other places. And I, I, I think it's kind of a beautiful thing, and it comes across a lot in the book that 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 dual sense of being the feeling like an outsider, but also feeling that that loyalty and and and, and homeliness to, to Africa really gives you a sensitivity in approaching these stories. So, but not just you know, it, it's got that kind of outsider look of look at how unusual this is because again as we'll get into in the stories in general all you know is all you know so if 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 you're of that society or culture you don't necessarily spot how unusual some of these things are or how wrong as, as some of these things are so so what was it that drew you into journalism and and and, and reporting i guess yeah well i knew i loved writing um i kind of discovered that discovered that in high school um, through an English class that I had. Uh, I realized that, I, I mean, I always knew I liked reading, and then I realized I liked writing and I was good at it through some English classes. And then in college, I worked on sort of the campus newspaper and did yeah. some internships, and I was like, oh, this is something I like to do. Because I'm naturally more of an introverted person, and so I like listening to people. You know, I like right. listening to yeah, their yeah, stories. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of a treat, really, to kind of just sit with someone and kind of get a glimpse of their life and just listen to what they have to say. Yeah. Um, especially people you would otherwise never have a chance to meet. Yeah. And so I was really drawn to the reporting side of, of journalism and thought, oh, maybe this is something I can do. The, the giving a voice to the voiceless. And again, it's something I encounter a lot when talking to people is most, a lot of people, no matter how amazing their lives are, it's their lives. So it doesn't feel that interesting so if you're not some extrovert then you don't want to just shout about yourself all the time because again the the small parts in the book about your life it's a fascinating life traveling over to uganda and reporting but the book quite quickly you become almost anonymous in it and i think Mm -hmm. that's a real attribute to to your storytelling and your you're burying yourself in the stories of of the subjects as such so you kind of talk about you started looking into um i guess the different battles with extremism in africa it's something that in the west we don't hear about that much we hear a lot about middle eastern extremism but not so much about what's going on in africa and the variations on different uh, continents so again what kind of drew you to that Mm -hmm. story in particular like, was it a case of just being over there and it's it's kind of unavoidable? Yeah, I mean, when I started, I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to be a conflict reporter or yeah. a war reporter. I just wanted to write about people. And inevitably, by basing myself in Uganda, later working in Nigeria, um, going back again to East Africa, I, I kept ending up in countries or near countries that were battling extremism or fundamentalism in different ways, um, you know, whether it was terrorist groups like Al-Shabaab or Boko Haram or in places like I read about Mauritania where people are battling, battling actual slavery there. Yeah. You know, I kept coming across 
different forms of fundamentalism growing and, and, and gaining influence and prominence in countries and, and watching as people dealt with it. And, you know, in, in this book, I'm only writing about um, sort of religious fundamentalism, but I, when I was reporting over many years, I saw different types. I saw uh, fundamentalism in, in the spheres of, of gender, um, yeah. in, the, in the spheres of sexuality. You know, I wrote about the gay rights movement in Uganda. And so I kept seeing it crop up in different ways. And I recognized it because it's something that, I mean, frankly, uh, you know, we see in, in the U.S., you know, we see in other countries different types of extremism. Sure. And so, um, you know, and I noticed that, you know, people were writing about, they're writing about war and they're writing about the terrorist groups and sort of trying to understand the perpetrators. But what interested me more was coming across people who were kind of resisting in some way. Yeah. And not even just as activists, just as like people who were like not going to go along with the status quo. Completely. And that's what I think is possibly identified was the most important part in these stories. And the thing that jumped out to me instantly is they're mainly stories of people fighting extremism and fighting from within their religion. Yeah. Um, and Christians and Muslims. So identifying that this is our religion and it's being hijacked, it's being taken in the wrong direction and we're fighting it. Again, it's a stat that people on the right like to ignore a lot, but the victims of most terrorism in recent years are, are, are Muslims. Mm -hmm. They've, they've mm -hmm. experienced the most. So I love that it's people questioning their religious practices and that's often seen as a right-wing thing. If you're questioning any religious practice, you're right-wing, you're, you're putting, but mm. all practices, religious, social, governmental should all be able to be put under some scrutiny of course, and, yeah. and, and looked over. So how was that seeing people fighting again, fighting against or fighting for something they love mm -hmm. whilst are within it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was a, a fascinating experience. I mean, I think of, um, I don't know if we're getting to the stories yet, but yeah, like, especially definitely. when I was in Mauritania writing yeah. um, about... I'm so glad you've, yeah. you've, you've said that because I have no idea how to say that. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know Mauritania, so yeah. Well, I mean, you know, not many people know about Mauritania, but, um, you know, I didn't even know much about before going. Yeah. I just knew that it had only outlawed slavery in 1981, and yet it's it was crazy, still going on. And the activist that I spent a lot of time with there, Biram, he was a radical activist. You know, yeah. he did radical things. But um, he was he was he is Muslim, and he believed that imams in that country were using Islam to to support the the practice of slavery, yeah. and that was just not something he believed his, his religion did. Completely. He just didn't believe that interpretation was correct. But fighting the use of Islam rather than fighting Islam. Exactly. And so, you know, I, I, I was incredibly, um, as I said, fascinated by him. I, I talked with him for hours about this, you know, what, what, what did he think his religion promoted, mm -hmm. Islam promoted? And, you know, he was very clear about the values he thought um, it upheld and how slavery was not just not at all part of that. Yeah. And, uh, and it was something I admired, you know, he called it Islam made in Mauritania, the, the interpretation that he believed was right. incorrect and that, yeah. that legitimized slavery. And, um, yeah, it was, it was an incredible experience because I think especially when you're talking about religious fundamentalism, it is tricky 
to to talk about in a nuanced way and to make sure that you're not painting in broad strokes or generalizations and and, and the best way to do that is often by talking with to people of that religion yeah um and seeing what they think and feel which people don't seem to do enough completely because there's going to be variation within it and 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 so many people who are against islam haven't studied islam so Mm -hmm. how can you be against something you've not right you're against what you've been told it is. Mm-hmm. So the people that are going to know it, the best of the people are within it. So exactly. surely they're the, the perfect people to talk to. Yet, as you said, they talk to the least. Um, right. I thought Abiram's story was absolutely f- amazing. Um, the fact that he kind of, he kind of sh- should have been a slave, but, mm-hmm. but, but wasn't. And his father was, 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 fiercely against slavery his mm-hmm. mother was against slavery but would take in slaves and kind mm-hmm. of look after them help them and right. his reaction to that the thing that i really liked was to arm himself f- physically and intellectually so it wasn't simply well, i'm gonna read it. It, it it was the fact that he saw his father's anger against yeah. this but knew that with the greatest respect he didn't have the intellectual capacity to to battle it in any way so mm. he decided to educate himself yes. and to to build himself up to start this fight. And the fight was, or has been at times, violent. And it has been at times shocking. But Mm -hmm. it must have been amazing to see someone so driven, again, to to dedicate their whole life, to say, I'm not going to, I can't make that change how I am now. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to better myself Mm -hmm. to become the person that I need to make that change. Right, right. It, It was, I mean... You know, I was just thinking to myself, you know, his poor wife, because, you know, this guy is single-mindedly driven to this cause. And, you know, based on his family history, his own experience is understandable. But, you know, in this book, you know, I would say that there's a range of, of, um, of people in terms of how... Um, how much they're devoted to sort of um, fighting um, for what they believe. And he's on one extreme end because, you know, he is, he's an activist, you know, this is what he does, this is what, what he um, has committed his life to. And it's very intentional as opposed to, you know, maybe perhaps other people in the book um, who aren't trying to be activists, but who are just trying to make choices that will let them live their lives happily yeah. and as normally as yeah, they can. Completely. Um, and, and again, it's kind of, the boldness of this, the, the boldness of, of of his actions. I was, I, was, I, I spoke yesterday, and the, the podcast will go out a, a few weeks apart. But I spoke mm-hmm. yesterday with uh, uh, Patrice Kalours, who started was one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. Oh yeah. Um, and we were discussing how it's it, it's often hard publicly to admit that that violence is sometimes the answer mm-hmm. and that's not to say it's always the answer and it's right. generally to say it should be an absolute last resort but particularly in africa there's history that shows that certain civil uprisings and changing changes only came through bloodshed if if, if there's such an oppressor and so on and so forth and biram's story was an example of that where they were kind of him and the the team he'd built up were were were, were taking on slave owners and 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 the police although it had become illegal weren't arresting anyone yeah. they were kind of t- t- 
turning them off. And it took Biram to be arrested. It took yeah. a violent clash with the police for the right. police to then go, okay, well, we're going to start arresting slave owners. Right. So it took that kind of... People will always argue that peace it should always be the mm. peaceful protest. It should, it should always be the way, but it depends on the conflict in hand, right? It does. And, you know, Barron was comparing the anti-slavery movement there with the beginnings of of, um, of the anti-apartheid movement in, yeah. in South Africa, which, of course, did have violent beginnings. Um, it's funny that, a little bit funny that later on, you know, when, I, when he... Uh, saw one of the first stories I did about him. He was sort of uneasy about the fact that I had quoted him on on um, on his thoughts about violence, which right. is to say that he did acknowledge that it could be necessary yeah. um, because it's you know it's still something kind of taboo to yeah. to talk about. Completely. But you know, a, a lot of the um, independence movements on the continent, um, of course, were were, were d- did end up violent and. Violence ends up being a part of civil uprisings sometimes, and he acknowledged that it was a possibility, especially in society like in Mauritania, where the beliefs about slavery are so still so stringent, still so you know intractable that it seems like yeah, yeah, that it it feels like to people there on the right side of things that's going to take more than just rhetoric yeah. to get things to mean to change meaningfully completely and it's 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 the need now which again is something we struggle with hugely in society is to acknowledge nuance in these situations right. and every individual case having its individual c- c- causes to say that some level of violence might m- m- might be needed again if if you're being physically and socially oppressed the law has changed, but the actions ha- haven't. Exactly. How can you say that it has to then just just keep saying no? I don't like this. Right. If you've not got that power, it it, it kind of takes that. And, and one of the powerful I- images, and indeed a catalyst of of a lot that was to come in 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 Biram's story, was in burning mm-hmm. the, the holy books mm-hmm. um, in a in a public speech, a public address he was giving. And again, as you said, it. It, it it was really the highlighting of him saying, I'm against the Islam that's been made here. Yeah. I'm not against Islam, but the version of it that's been made here is a fiction and is uh, m- completely manipulated. Um, I had Suad McKenney on a, a while back who's written, who's spoken to m- many extremists and terrorists over the years, and one of the things, the way that she put it was... R- Religion isn't isn't radicalizing people. People mm. are radicalizing religion, yeah. and that's kind of yeah. that was a bold stand and a dangerous stand on his part in mm. an Islamic, mm-hmm. a, a Muslim country, an area to 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 burn the holy book. But right. again, it was a powerful one because it's saying, "Look, no, this is this isn't acceptable." Mm-hmm. So that must have been an in intense and driven a young man that you met there kind of thing. Yeah. You, know, you must have sensed that yeah. in him to be that bold. Cause there's there for the dramatic there as well. That's not well, a, exactly. there is a performance there oh, of going, completely. look at this. And in the way you tell the story in the book, it's beautiful. Cause I'm kind of thinking, is he going to, is he, right. is, is it, going to happen? But it's, right. it's so dramatic and b- 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 building up to his moment. It's uh-huh. like, this feels like a film, but 
that that gives it that impact, right? Exactly, and that's how I first learned about him. Yeah, I I, I read a short little clip. Um, uh, NGO had published saying, you know, Biram, you know, this activist had been recently put in pr- uh, prison because he had burned these um these these legal books considered holy in Islam that imams used to to justify slavery, and it was so divisive. Even people. In the anti-slavery movement, had been shocked and upset that he had done this, and I yeah. thought, "Who is this guy? Like, I have to, yeah. I have to talk to him." Um, and after I eventually found his contact, and we were emailing actually for months before I even went to go see him, yeah. and I could just tell this was someone who was incredibly passionate and and had a lot to say, and, and would be really open, and that was really appealing to me. I thought, yeah. "Okay, this is someone I, yeah. I want to spend time with." He's willing to talk honestly yeah. and openly, yeah. and again, m- maybe. More, more willing than most because of his, of his air for the dramatic well, and for the, you know, he wants well, to perform he wants to sh- show off almost which right. that's ideal for a journalist to, right. get, to get that out of exactly and also you know I try to be clear in the book you know He's an incredible person, but he's also not perfect, and yeah. he's not necessarily a hero, right? Yeah. Like he's, he's. There's so much of of that in the book, which again mm-hmm. I think is a, a beautiful. When I saw the title of it and knew of it, I was like, well, it's going to be a lot of aren't these people mm-hmm. wonderful? But most, a lot of the characters in there either have incredibly flawed pasts or are flawed in some way in general, which, exactly. again, it's it's the real world. Right. That's, that's it, the beauty of it. Exactly. It's, it's humanity. And, you know, um, exactly. And I wanted to show that because there's often, uh, often when we're talking about conflict or war, we want to paint people as like perfect perpetrators are heroes mm-hmm. and there's so much gray in between yeah. you know people can be both at the same time yeah. they can be perpetrators and victims and so how do we yeah. talk about those people and how do we talk to those people completely i mean that's a great one to lead on to i think the the thing i got so i do a podcast a week and at the moment i happen to have a really hectic schedule of a lot of people mm-hmm. and the publishers kind of have put your book f- forward and put you forward and i politely said look i'll give it a quick look but mm-hmm. i'm really busy at the moment mm-hmm. and literally i finished i sat down for one good read of the first chapter or so mm-hmm. an email back immediately saying we have to have this conversation mm-hmm. and one of the reasons for that was something that just i've not seen talked about and that struck me was the fact that w- when people argue when the left even argue against people saying that Islam is a dangerous religion. People argue about Christianity, and they tend to say, you know, the the in the past, in history, when they were taking over countries and slain and all this, and no one really talks about that. There's extremism now yeah. and recently, and that's the thing that blew me away. In this, was reading the story in 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 Uganda, I believe it was, mm-hmm. that's of, of Christian extremism and. It's something I hadn't realised at all because it's it stems r- really from Coney, who, mm-hmm. as far as I remember, is the first hashtag that went viral. Right. Um, it, it, right. I, I, it's the first time I remember that being this huge thing. I, exactly. I swear it's, it's where I learned what a hashtag was. Right. Because there was the the get c- yeah. Coney or or whatever those different exactly. ones were. But I didn't know that it was it was was Christian extremism and yeah. his. His walked reading of the Bible, instructing his rebels to cut the lips, ears, and noses of their victims, to amputate the arms and legs of people who were caught cycling on a Sunday, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And that instantly, I was like, right, we need 
this needs to be talked about a lot more because there's a lot of talking and fairly about Islamic extremism because it's it's an issue, but not nearly enough about the ongoing uh, Christian extremism. So you tell the story of of Eunice and Bosco in mm-hmm. in this one, and the reason it, it came to mind instantly then was the fascinating side of things that it's the LRA that, mm-hmm. that you talk about largely here, and I believe it was 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 this one, but generally the members of the LRA are going around abducting people and kidnapping mm-hmm. people, but they were generally abducted and kidnapped in their youth themselves. So, so Bosco was, was, was kidnapped as a child. And then yeah. five, 10 years on, he's in the jungle kidnapping children. Yeah. Cause that's all he's been taught. That's, that's, yeah. it's kind of, it's weird. I was, I was discussing it with a friend the other day and liking it. It sounds like a weird one, but I guess it's easy, easy to relate to. I liken it to when people talk about f- footballers or all these other things in the locker rooms hazing people. And when mm. they joined, they hated it and they were bullied. Or even at school, they were bullied and it was horrible. But then they became a senior and they're doing it to the people below them, even though they know how horrible it is. Oh, but it's just, it's how it is. It's part of our culture. It's how we do it. And that kind of struck as this, but in obviously a, f- a far more extreme way. Right. Well, see, the thing is, uh, the, the, Lord, the Lord's Resistance Army was very savvy in a way, right? Because it kidnapped people at their most vulnerable, at their most impressionable, mm. which is to say they kidnapped children. And children were um, which, I mean, it's, easy it's, to brainwash. It's, it's a system used by the British and American armies as well. Right. With, with, with right. In schools, mm-hmm. br- you know, really pushing, be the best you can be, mm-hmm. j- 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 join the army. So... Mm. Yeah, it's a known tactic. I right, guess. right, right, and, and and right, and even um, states armies have done this. But they they would kidnap children who were incredibly young, um, not you know obviously haven't been in school that long, impressionable, and force them to to commit atrocities, to kill people, to kidnap people, to the point that sometimes some of the people they uh, kidnapped and forced to become members would buy into that ideology. Not always. I mean, and, and there were many people who didn't and later escaped, but some did. And and, th- and that was also the, the brutal, you know, sickness of it is kidnapping children and then forcing them often to go back to their home communities to kidnap other children or mm-hmm. to kill people, even kill their parents, kill relatives. Mm-hmm. So the kind of experience that ch- um, children went through in this group was horrific because at, at, at on one point they're committing awful acts yeah. at the same time they are the victims of awful acts yeah. it's the old um, example of being the victim and the, right, perpetrator, right. the perpetrator at once right and so you know th- these children they they're living in captivity they're forced to be part of this group because it's either do or be killed yeah. and they live for years like this often and then when they finally escape if they do finally escape or are rescued they then have to deal with all they did before yeah. as they try to live their new lives. And it, and it's one where escape and rescue, again, is often resisted or thought of as negatively b- b- because of the brain. Oh, yeah. The belief that if you do escape, then you and your family and everyone else will be killed. Or mm-hmm. even if you're rescued, the, the brain the brainwashing is such that within a certain amount of time, you you you're choosing to be there. You want to be there. You're part of it. You've been, it's now your identity and your family. Exactly. And that was kind of the real strange conflict of this story in particular. Cause 
Eunice was a young girl that, that Bosco, when he was part of, once he'd become part of the LRA, he, he kidnapped and she became his bushwife as mm-hmm. such. And again, we won't kind of go over the, mm-hmm. the whole story, but mm-hmm. he, he, she became his bushwife and her first sexual experience was him, him, him raping her in, mm-hmm. in, in the bush, which is, is horrific. But they went on to be a couple right. and to have children. And right. again, it's that realisation. And at first I'm reading this and thinking, this is horrible. This is right. Stockholm Syndrome. This is everything else. But mm. it's not because it was the point of realising exactly as we said, that he was the, a victim as well. And when they kind of realise that they were both a victim is when they start to look into escaping and and getting their freedom and fighting for their independence and against what, you know, living in this horrible situation of... And and Eunice as well. The the girls would be forced to go and kill women Mm -hmm. working in fields and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So Mm -hmm. such a horrific set of events, but... a, a bizarre love story as such because the monster that kidnapped her she then had to similarly be turned into a monster of sorts through action so it's 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 such a strange web how was that as speaking to them obviously some years on mm-hmm. and trying to get your head around the kind of that journey because it's such an impossible reading on paper is one thing hearing it f- from their lips and not having your jaw drop open in, in, in shock must have been a tough one. to. Yeah, well, I mean, so when I first lived in Uganda, um, my first time around after college, um, the, the, the Civil War with, with the LRA, people were thinking it was ending. Um, and so, you know, ended up sort of just mutating into something else. The LRA moved into this Central Africa and is still continuing its rampage there. But I had started interviewing victims of the war in the north um and i would talk to former child soldiers i would talk to people who had had their children kidnapped or who had been mutilated or hurt by the lra and so i'd had some experience talking to people who were just um who would just experience the senseless brutality of this group um i talked to kids who had come back and who were still young and who were trying to comprehend what the group had done to them, but who were still children, you know, and I could, they were still, you know, I could, they were still playing computer games and still playing soccer. And still, yeah. so I could see that, that, um, you know, that, that complex humanity of, of children, of young adults who had been in these situations, but who were fundamentally in a sense, still the same. They still had the same kind of desires and, and, and goals for themselves. And so when I then met, you know, some Bosco, I, you know, went in thinking, okay, I, I know the story a little bit. I know the story of yeah, people sure. who have been abducted and who are trying to get past that now. What was new to me was this this idea or this reality of women choosing to reunite with the men they had been assigned to while yeah. in captivity. That was something I, I had a very hard time um, understanding at first because, you know, like you said, I also thought this must just be based on uh, material need or like um, some kind of pressure that they feel like if they don't go back with these men that they can't find 
other partners yeah, who would who, who them accept off. them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sure. And you know, I did interview some couples where I did feel like that was the case. Yeah, yeah. But with the Innocent Bosco, why I was drawn to them is because over over the time I spent with them, I did realize that both of them were actively trying to reckon with with their past um, to sort of um, to try to to understand their culpability and also um and also and and also their 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 victimhood and that they were both very honest about what had happened yeah. you know bosco was did not sugarcoat what he did and but i also, also could tell he felt a lot of regret about it yeah. um and you know as they recounted their stories to me as you said there was a there were clearly moments where they both realized their kinship their um, their shared sense of loss and 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 pain by both having been abducted, and that's what united them. and And I could tell that they clearly cared for each other. Yeah. And so, over time, over spending time with them, I thought I began to realize something deeper was at play. I didn't know if it was love. You know, they told me it was love, so I believed them. But I th- I think it was very complex. It wasn't just love. It was it was love dependency. It was. Um, you know, mutual understanding, uh, a shared sense of trauma, and you know, I guess if you look at a lot of relationships, it's it's a it's a combination of a lot of things, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And so it began to, I began to see them as even though they went through this extremely, you know, um, to what, what what a lot of people would consider a very unusual experience, the the ties that bind them now are not so different than yeah. perhaps other couples. Yeah. Yeah, again, it's, it's 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 fascinating, and so it, it's beautiful to see the simplicity and relatability in such unrelatable stories. Yeah. If you know what I mean, like you yeah. on paper, you hear it as like that's unimaginable, and then there's little glimmers in there that you're like, that's so common, that's so normal, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. so human, right. um, which is a wonderful thing in such horrific circumstances and places. Right. So. Uh, one of the other places you discuss is Nigeria, mm-hmm. um, and and Abba and, and Rebecca are there. And Abba was someone that just I warmed to straight away. That I mean, he became known as as Elder mm-hmm. because of his calm and and rational wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where Boko Haram were uh, or are at their at their worst and, 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 and ravaging. So, so what was kind of the story there? I, I, I found it fascinating. The, the closeness of elder, like it seemed like a tight line of him being someone that sat down and talking to you and, and fighting Boko Haram and mm-hmm. someone who's in Boko Haram. It seemed like there was that, that mm-hmm. close point of, mm-hmm. of it could have gone either way. And then he had a moment of, this isn't what I believe. This is, this is ridiculous. So, how is that kind of that that the balance in those situations where it is religion based and where it is mm-hmm. so groups start possibly with good intentions mm-hmm. and then can be corrupted or led either way right yeah i would say um it was not more that he could have joined them but that once he started his own vigilante group yeah it there was a point where it began to look you know uh, yeah. unsettlingly and similar yeah. to Boko yeah, Haram. So, so Elzer is this guy who, you know, had a pretty happy childhood in North, Northeast, Ni- yeah. Northeast Nigeria. 
Um, he later became a, a government bureaucrat, you know, a state auditor. He is also a devout Muslim, um, has, has, a, has a big family, lots of children, wives. And he saw his hometown being turned upside down by, by uh, Boko Haram's rebellion. And he was sort of intimately uh, tied to, in a way, he, he knew the founder of Boko Haram, yeah. you know, Muhammad um, Yusuf. He would greet him and, and see him around. But he was wary of Muhammad Yusuf's preaching because he saw how radical it was getting. That and was that, it. It seemed at first he mm-hmm. seemed like a, a, a guiding force or a positive right. thing. And then yeah. it seemed like Abba had, had that moment of, this isn't what I think it is. Exactly. This is going, this is being a corrupted, absolute power mm-hmm. corrupts, absolutely. Kind of, mm-hmm. It felt as he was getting bigger and bigger, I was like, mm, this, right. is, this is going the wrong way. Here. Right. This is not the Islam that I know. Yeah, yeah. And so at, at one point, some, year, some years later, um, and this was 2013, the Boko Haram uprising had begun in 2009. And in those intervening years, you know, the group had wreaked complete terror on, on northeastern Nigeria, you know, yeah. massacring villages, um, kidnapping, killing people. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but the thing is, is that in his hometown of Maiduguri, you know, Boko Haram members were actually sort of almost living openly. Like people knew who they were. They were living yeah. in the neighborhoods, um, but people were too scared to either confront them or report them because they didn't want to be killed by Boko Haram yeah. until one day when um, this guy, a taxi driver, um, performs a citizen's arrest on a suspected Boko Haram member. By a taxi driver, right. which goes, no, right. not, in my, right. not in my town. Right, he performs a citizen's arrest and reports him to the military. The military arrests him, and then everyone's inspired. They're yeah. like, yeah, why? We, we know who these guys are. Let's go after them. Yeah. And so they start forming groups by neighborhood. And then over a period of time, um, a vigilante force begins, and Elder becomes a unit commander of some 8,000 men. Wow. And so this is like a huge force. The, um, that started off with sticks and cutlasses kind right, of. Right, right. Homemade either weapons. Arresting or chasing out kind exactly. of thing. Exactly. So for then that to grow to 8,000 force of, right. of, of soldiers, essentially. Right, and that was just Elder's unit. I mean, there yeah. were other units yeah. com- uh, comprised of thousands of people. And so... Um, it was an incredible thing because the Nigerian army was, was incredibly, at the time, frankly, useless um, in fighting this group. Um, yeah. And it really fell on to the burden of the people to protect themselves. Yeah. And these brave men and women literally armed themselves to, to fight the group. Yeah. Um, the problem is, is that later on, their tactics, tactics became um, worrying because they became their own version of law and order in yeah. these towns and cities in the Northeast. And so they could arrest anyone they wanted, um, detain anyone they wanted, and sometimes kill anyone they wanted. Yeah. And um, people became nervous about their power. Yeah, and it's, it's, it, it is a scary one because we've seen it a lot mm-hmm. over recent y- years with when uprisings occur because of desperation, mm-hmm. you know, unavoidable uprisings, there then gets to a point where if the people rising up don't know how to control this power and, 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 and how to run things, it can become a dangerous thing because there were points in this story where he was kind of saying, look, I don't tell any of my people to be violent. I don't yeah. support that. Right. But kind of an implication of, but what they do 
without my knowledge yeah it's like, it's like well exactly. that's not good that right. that's how bad things start right. happening that's right. how that then becomes within your knowledge and then mm-hmm. that you then become someone who needs to be overthrown as right. well so right. it's a tough one right it's the, tough the starting because... with the best intentions but again it's still the best intentions via your interpretation of your religion or your interpretation of what is good for your community well yeah that's what it is for what what are you allowed to do when your life is upended so extremely like how extremely are you allowed to go yeah to what lengths are you allowed to go yeah. to to protect yourself your way of life your family you know one might say an you extreme can understand situation. it being extreme you exactly can being an extreme reaction exactly but. so you know this is a guy who is not an activist he's just someone who got caught up and a lot of what he and his colleagues have done is is admirable but at the same time um it's also um sort of a case study and in 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 these very um drastic situations when people react drastically yeah what is allowed what isn't what what is the moral code here is there one i mean I, i think there is but i think that it shifts a little bit it's tough and it it shifts a lot yeah because again it's that kind of you 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 push to this out of desperation and all of a sudden you're the person that people are looking to for guidance and leadership Mm -hmm. and you know i i didn't i I was reacting i'm not a leader right you know i'm i'm standing up against something that's that's horrendous but it's it's such a tough one because because so many of these groups seem to walk that confusing line of, of even c- confusing line of public support and fear yeah. there seems to be a lot where people are oh, no these are our mm-hmm. we're against the government or we're against this it's like well no now the people that were against the government are more dangerous and it's such a complex battle i guess mm-hmm. um the fourth story again i loved because it's so at odds with all of these but equally as important as you mm-hmm. kind of touched upon about people just are living their lives and yeah. that being a stand in itself um and there's a lot there but it's 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 aisha in in somalia mm-hmm. and essentially it's a story i mean we've talked about uh resistance through violence we've talked about resistance through defecting uh we've talked about resistance through the burning of books and protest this is essentially resistance through basketball, mm-hmm. which is it, it sounds it sounds like the name of a film, but it, <laughs> but it isn't. And right. it's a fascinating one because she was a young girl who who who, who loved basketball mm-hmm. and and is good at basketball mm-hmm. and wants to play basketball. Mm-hmm. Yet it was seen by certain areas of her religion or elders that that's not for a, a woman t- t- to do the clothes right. that they wear to play basketball yeah. and things right. like that. That's not what they should be doing. So she would, but I think it was at the age of, of, of fourteen she, mm-hmm. she got her first death threat in a phone call. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Somalia. Amazing. Right. So I mean, Somalia is a really interesting place because before the advent of fundamentalists, you know, like Al Shabaab and extremely conservative clerics, women actually had a lot of freedom. You yeah. know, the women's basketball team in Somalia a couple of decades ago was one of the best in East Africa. You know, Aisha's mom played uh, in, in the club league there. A lot of the girls who play basketball now in Somalia, their mothers played, yeah. you know, went around with their hair uncovered and in, in afros and in, in shorts and in, in shirts. And so these girls grew up with these stories. They knew the kind of 
rights and freedoms their mothers had and were entitled to, and yeah. they feel entitled to those same things. Yeah. Even though they're living in a, in a society now where men, where militants will call them up and say, oh, I'll kill you if you keep wearing, if you keep playing basketball and wearing shorts, sh- shirts and pants outside. Yeah. You know, and so this is a serious thing, you know. Um, I interviewed a, one girl whose friend was, was killed by militants a couple of years ago. But these girls... You know they're they're on the internet. They had their mother, their mothers who played basketball. They know what they're entitled to 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 do as teenage girls. They know the lives they should be having, yeah. which is to play any sport they want. You know, hang out whoever they yeah. want to. Yeah. You know, go out, have fun, and so they live their lives like that. Even though by living their lives like that, it's at great risk sometimes completely and, and it, so yeah it yeah. is one of the more un, unusual stories as well because of that i mean we spoke earlier of if of all you know is all you know but mm-hmm. this is an area that extremism kind of came to mm-hmm. and wasn't always there it's not that this is our, our history and we're trying to fight against it it's like mm-hmm. no our history we'd already fought against it but mm-hmm. somalia kind of became a hotbed for extremism where people were chased out of other places kind mm-hmm. of thing it seemed mm-hmm. that, and it was just kind of that seemed like somewhere that it appeared so even harder to just accept these rules when yeah. you've grown up s- s- seeing all the other options mm-hmm. and seeing that this isn't how it has to be or exactly. necessarily should be exactly and knowing that um is incredibly powerful to a lot of women you know, um, I think there's an idea that, like, women living in societies just go along with it. Like, they stay inside, they cover themselves up. Yeah. And, like, of course, a lot of women do that do, do that to survive. Yeah. But there are, a, a, there are a lot of shades, a lot of different types of women. And, you know, on the bolder side are these teenage girls who are probably so bold because they are teenage girls. Yeah. Um, who refuse to go along with the status quo, who refuse to just, um, you know... Uh, stay 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 inside at the same time they're not activists yeah. they're not trying to be heroes but they the just... strength of it again mm. the fact that she argued against the mm-hmm. the phone death threats right would, would argue and say no this is something i meant i'm i should be allowed to do and right and shortly after that came some some in-person death threats one with where she was they were picked up by mm. a taxi Right. Oh, was in- Sorry, is this too loud? No, no, that's fine. Okay, that's okay, fine. Okay, it's okay. okay. I like okay. a bit of atmosphere. Uh, okay, yeah, okay. It shows you in the real world. Okay. Um, yeah, the fact that, that 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 her and some friends were picked up by a taxi, and it was a trap. Essentially, it was mm-hmm. it was someone who knew what who they were and what they'd been doing that they'd been playing basketball mm-hmm. and took them down an alleyway and they were threatened. But again, they kind of. They fought against that mm-hmm. and, 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 and managed to escape and get mm-hmm. a policeman. And to return to basketball the next week is right. a, a, an insane thought in that situation. Right. But it's, it's, it's something that they wouldn't just accept, which right. is amazingly right. powerful, as powerful and inspirational as, as, as being on the, on the front line, right? Because you're right. not a soldier and you're not forced into that situation. You're saying this is my right and this is my passion and it's right. what I want to do. Right. And also made me think of like, you know, in societies where, you know, violence sort of like, where violence in the form of terrorist attacks or things like that become so common, you know, how people's version of normal shifts in the way, um, you know, if, 
if, if there is a risk of going out and there's an explosion, things like that, how, how does your life alter and does it return to, you know, obviously people can't just stay inside all the time. They have to go to work. They have to go to school. Yeah. So I don't necessarily think that the fear lessens, but just the sort of, the, the sort of ability to cope better maybe arises. Oh, one yeah. of the coldest and most, again, m- most of what I read on, on, on her story was, wow, this is such positive, but, the, the, the sadness when you spoke of her brother yeah. being caught by a stray bullet and her response being, this is life. Right. No one lives forever. Right. I mean, it's true and right. it's accurate, but for a, a young girl to have that that acceptance, I don't know, it seems sad. Again, yeah. in many ways, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's reality. And yeah, I but, think but in the West, sad. we have yeah. a negative, too, too negative a relationship with death because again it is something that is it does happen to to everyone we shouldn't be as scared of it and as it shouldn't be as taboo but despite believing that it was still hard to read Mm -hmm. someone with such an acceptance of yeah that kind of that's that's how it is here and it was hard to see i mean because i I thought you know obviously she was sad and she was upset about her death but i thought wow to 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 be in a place and and to have to now have the philosophy that you know it happens it happens yeah. a lot. I, I did feel yeah. I also felt sad. Yeah, but that was tough. Well, um, I'll start to round things up as we're getting towards an hour now. But mm-hmm. how how do you prepare yourself to go into these situations mm-hmm. and to talk to these people? What what r- r- research do you do? Or what precautions? Mm-hmm. Do- there you take as I was reading it. I kept getting very worried for you <laughs> to make sure you, because again, it's it's these crazy, dangerous situations and speaking to people who are under threat in many ways, are mm-hmm. are rebels, are at odds with dangerous people. So, what is your approach? What is your, right. your, your your preparation? I guess. Yeah. Well, before I go anywhere, I'm I'm definitely um, reading a lot about that place and yeah. um, books and news articles, but. And talking to people who yeah. who have been there, who um, have written about it, but on a very practical level, when I'm going to a place that's more dangerous, like Mogadishu or northeastern Nigeria, I'm trying to a talk to a lot of people who've been there who can get the recommendations on places to stay, yeah. um, car services to use, you know, the the safest ways basically to yeah. be in that place. And then I'm also trying to make connections with people who are there and who I can connect with, who could either, if I need it, work as an interpreter or as a fixer or just um, be someone I can connect with um, to, like, buy them a meal or a drink and get their advice about being yeah. in a place. Often maybe a local journalist or, um, you know, maybe someone who works at a local NGO in that in that place. Um, so when I was in Mogadishu, I had the luck of um, connecting with uh, a Somali young woman who actually lives in... Um, Abu Dhabi, and she's a filmmaker, and she right. was also doing something about bas- women's basketball in the country. Yeah. And so for my second trip there, we ended up connecting and traveling at the same time. And we were doing um, a lot of our moving around a lot together, which was great yeah. because even though the first time I'd been there, I had, um, you know, I was traveling with security, which was just not ideal for when you're trying to interview subjects yeah you know you want to go into their home and then tell them well i'm just gonna have these armed guards outside you know yeah, it doesn't make it the most relaxing exactly exactly yeah. so the second time i it was a little bit more risky because we were moving around with no security but yeah. i was moving around with someone who was somali who 
knew the city relatively well. So we could go around going to people's homes and stay there without um, really, you know, worrying about standing out because we had some like big SUV or like guards in the street. Um, And, you know, I sort of wrapped, you know, wore wore local dress and tried to blend in as best as I could. I mean, people knew I wasn't Somali, but, you know, I tried as much as I could. And then when I was in Northeastern Nigeria, um, I you know, went to the town, Chibok, where a lot of schoolgirls were kidnapped in 2014, yeah. which was a very dangerous journey. But I traveled with a resident of the town, mm-hmm. and um, I relied on his advice, like, let's travel on a market day where the more people are around. I stayed at his house. So I really relied on the generosity um, and guidance of people from these places yeah. to help me travel as safely as possible. You know, there's only as safe as you can be in unpredictable conflict zones but i of tried course. but yeah that's yeah. It. having people who you 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 know and can trust to take advice from and that you can comfortably go right i will take your if you say that this isn't safe exactly. i'm not going to argue it's like exactly. oh come on let's just get this last bit let's just do that you're exactly. gonna go all right if you think it's not safe then let's completely then let's call it a day yeah that's that's completely my philosophy i will take your like let's go when you we we say let's go or let's we or let's try it when you say we can try it i am not someone who's gonna like put my life or other people's lives at risk just for the sake of a story of course. at least i try not to yeah i mean <laughs> i yeah. still did go to you know these places but i uh, I tell myself I try to do as, yeah. as safely as possible. It's as calculated a risk as possible. Yes, yeah. Um, so uh, were there any writers or journalists or documentary makers that kind of drew, drew towards this as a, as, as a path? As a, mm. Because, again, mm. it's, it is an unusual one because regardless how calculated, it is still a risk. It is still it's going – and it's not – just chasing after the big story either it's chasing after the small stories yeah. the untold stories right. which is what makes it more unusual i guess and stands mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. So, so were there anyone that kind of were your inspirations or, or guidance there yeah i mean well i mean uh when i was growing up i loved christiana amanpour just right. for her sort of like level-headed reasonable reporting and like very extreme situations like i yeah. felt like she never exaggerated things or kind of you know made them a spectacle yeah. and i appreciated that and um there's a writer wendell stevenson who i appreciated she wrote a book on georgia um years ago and it was a book of stories about georgia her people there her experiences and i also appreciated the way she just told the stories of like ordinary people in their lives but made them seem relatable and interesting and yeah. You know, I, I, I strove towards that. Because even though I was writing about considerably more extreme situations, I did want to try to tell the the stories of ordinary people in yeah. their lives and not make them seem so exotic or so out of comprehension. Yeah. Is there something in particular that would make you know, oh, this is a story mm-hmm. I need to tell? Because, again, I guess being a journalist anyway, you're not – correct me if I'm wrong – but you weren't necessarily initially simply chasing four stories to go in this book. You're kind of wanting to gather and tell as many stories. And Mm -hmm. then I guess you kind of going, right, these are the four that I need to take further. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you ask that because as I now work on my um, second book project, I find the people I'm drawn to share some similarities with these people, even though it's a completely separate 
context. It's now in America. Yeah. But I'm drawn to people who who make um, what I find are really compelling decisions in their life or really compelling choices yeah. that all of a sudden take them on a different path. Um, whether those decisions were forced upon them or they made them themselves, and how those decisions or what those decisions reveal about these people and about the way they think and about what, the way they feel in contexts that are, are are very distinct. So with, with the four people, with actually the five, six people in this book, yeah. you know, they obviously all found themselves in situations they didn't, they wouldn't have expected. Yeah. Um, but I'm interested in the way they decided to go along or not go along with them, you know, yeah. often not go along with them and why they made the, those decisions, yeah, which to me exactly. are, you know, very big and the, decisions. And, and, and the points at which they make those decisions. Exactly. I think it's all the more amazing if someone has gone along with something for a certain amount of time yeah. to, to, to then fight back and resist. So I've, yeah. I've told the story numerous times, but when I worked in a record store years ago, I had a security guard and there was a big guy's a, mm-hmm. a shaven head, bulldog, tattoo on his arm and I was like this isn't this isn't my kind of guy Mm -hmm. and then I got to know him and he'd been brought up a racist and been brought up on the far right but he was working at that point as a security guard to save up to get a laser a a tattoo removal of the bulldog on a union jack because he's he's learned that that's not the way and that was for me to grow up not racist mm-hmm. felt kind of easy because I had a nice family who right. felt that way, but it struck me as all the more Im- impressive and empowering of someone who not had every right to be racist, but it wouldn't be surprising considering the family he grew up in that were all mm-hmm. racist, that mm-hmm. he was fighting against that and had chosen otherwise. And that's the thing that was fascinating in the book is, is a few of the people, there's some that are fighting it from day one and God bless, uh, bless them. That's amazing to see that 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 drive from an early age but there's others who you'd think wow that takes a lot to be that far down the line and again particularly with with a, a, a Eunice and Bosco as examples when you've gone that far when you've done stuff that exactly it's, it's easier to accept that? if you stay in that life it's right well that's how life is if you step out of it you then have to deal with the guilt exactly. and the consequence so that made it all the more more powerful of, of when people choose to make that that fire, yeah, exactly, and and that's it. Yeah, as you said, the, the resistance of of defection. I hadn't I hadn't even thought about it like that, but it's true. That's part of it. Yeah, just by leaving all that they've known for for most of their lives yeah. um, was was an incredible risk, and now they are they are trying to cope with the, with all the guilt, all the responsibility, yeah. and still you know provide a, a new life for their children. Yeah, of course. And, and so, so I'll. I'll wrap things up now and let you enjoy your weekend and have some <laughs> tourist time in London and stuff. Um, what's ahead and where can people keep up to date with everything yeah. that you're doing? Because, again, it's uh, the book is the focus of this, and I urge everyone to read it, but mm-hmm. you're you're a writer in general. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's, there's constantly things to keep up with. Right. Obviously, another book's on its way, but, yeah. Right. right. Yeah, so now that I've finished um, A Moonless Starless Sky, I... I'm working on a new project um, in Alabama, actually, um, my home state. Uh, I'm working on uh, some stories there that will come out later. And then I'm also working on a second book there that is exploring why Alabama 
has been such a prominent stage for the best and worst results of the American experiment. Right. Um, So that's something I'm exploring right now. You know, uh, America is also in an extreme situation right now, an extreme political crisis, and people are reacting extremely. And uh, there's a lot to to delve into there. Um, Yeah, but otherwise, yeah, I'm online. I'm on Twitter and and Scram and all the platforms. <laughs> Perfect. Well, yeah. well, thank you very much for your time and yeah, and, and, so and for giving a voice to these stories because mm-hmm. it's 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 rare to kind of hear such stories and be certain that if I wasn't reading them in this book, I would mm-hmm. never have heard them. Mm-hmm. You know, the nature mm-hmm. of these people and the 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 obscureness and and distance of where they are. These stories aren't stories that that. that that feel like they would have been told otherwise. So, yeah, mm. thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was great. Cheers. <laughs> You've been listening to Squibbish Pits Discretion Pieces. There we go. That was episode 198. Um, what an amazing young lady, right? I was blown away. I was so pleased and honoured to get to have this conversation. It was, it, it's always a nerve wracking one when, as I mentioned a few times, if it's as someone you've not met. And in this case, someone I've not really had any interaction with because a lot of it was set up by the publishers and stuff like that. So, yeah. It was amazing. I think those stories are fascinating. The fact that those stories, those stories wouldn't exist if it weren't uh, for this book and the, and the hard work of Alexis. Um, Or they, they certainly wouldn't traveled as far as they have. I was, I was chatting with, um, I recorded a podcast with beans on toast. Who's a folk musician and great dude. And I was talking to him about the Jack and My Brown album that came out on Speech of Element Records. And that's an album that is from an artist who had no desire to tour or play live. He played he played live twice, didn't see the appeal. Had no desire particularly to do interviews or, or photo shoots because had no desire to, 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 to be a career a musician. But had written this amazing album. And I had to twist his arm to get us, to allow us to release it. And we released it, and it got it got eight out of ten in Uncut magazine. All this kind of thing it was this. It's an amazing record, but it wouldn't have existed without speech development records. And it's that kind of thing. I love stuff like that that wouldn't have tra- have travelled that gets a chance to have a life because of 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 someone just by chance giving it this platform. So yeah. Anyway, I'm rambling on. As I mentioned, you, 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 you're getting double podcasts this week, two amazing inspirational ladies. So, yeah, next week, or sorry, on Friday, tune back in as I'll be chatting to Charlotte Hatherley of, um, of Ash. And we talk about loads of stuff. We talk about Ash. We talk about touring. We talk about being in, 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 in Batflashes' band. We talk about, uh, a lot of of sci-fi nerding out catching up on on what she thought on altered carbon mute annihilation all the all the netflix ones and all sorts of sci-fi from 70s onwards so we have a good nerd out about that and we talk about her upcoming event at space rocks 
so uh, which is in association with the European Space Agency. It's a live event. Go and Google it. Go and look at their website. It's in a couple of weeks. So check that out, and there'll be more on Friday. Lovely. See you later. Bye-bye.